0: We're jumping in. We're, nobody, nobody's coming up this morning. So it's just us. We're going to do this. Um, we've had some awesome time. We've been able to talk about the Bannocks these last couple of weeks and excited uh, to just jump right in. And so we're in a series uh, over the last uh, handful of weeks during this Lenten season where we've been focusing on this, this phrase, rest for your soul. And, and we recognize, as we've been kind of navigating through this time, that we, we need rest for our souls. We are a restless generation. We, we struggle with those types of things. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about some of these themes. We've been talking about uh, the the principles or values of Sabbath, which is to stop, to rest, to delight, to worship. We have talked about uh, rhythms, how Sabbath is a built-in rhythm. Six days we work, and one day we Rest and Last week we talked about resistance, and we're going to do the same this morning. Last week we talked about how we need to embrace our limitations. As created beings, we need to embrace the fact that we are not the creator. And so Sabbath is a way that we are able to tap into that for ourselves. And so we're going to continue that theme uh, around resistance this morning. I came across um, a, a Japanese word. Uh, Several years ago that I've just kind of considered the last several years, Uh, and I've I've shared this once before, but it's called the Kuroshi. Kuroshi can be translated into death by overwork. This phrase, Kuroshi, according to the credible source Wikipedia, uh, Kuroshi is a Japanese term relating to occupation-related sudden death. The most common medical causes of Kuroshi deaths are heart attacks and strokes due to stress and malnourishment, or fasting. Mental stress from the workplace can also cause Kiroshi through workers taking their own lives. Death by overwork is the phrase that we get, which is Kiroshi. Today, we don't see this as something to correct, but instead we celebrate it with this phrase we use called workaholism. This phrase was coined in the 1970s, and it uh and it meant in the 1970s this, the compulsion or the uncontrollable need to work incessantly. So that, was the, that was the word and definition in the 1970s. And then 30 years later, more data came out in 2006, uh, landed on three common kind of uh, commonalities to workaholism, which are these. Feeling compelled to work because of internal pressures. Having persistent thoughts about work when not working. And working beyond what is reasonable, reasonably expected of the worker as established by the requirements of the job or basic econo- economic needs. Despite the potential for negative consequences like marital issues. Workaholism. We boast in our busyness. How are you? Ah, busy. Busy little bee here. Busy, busy, busy. Right? Like that's what we say. That's what we tout. That's what we do. We boast in our busyness and our workaholism. Even as we suffer under its tyranny, we celebrate it even though we suffer under its tyranny. Yet Jesus and his invitation doesn't leave us in that place. He's so kind to not leave us in our places. We say come as you are but don't stay there because Jesus always invites us into something much more beautiful than what is our current life. So the question is, is there a practice in the way of Jesus that confronts our workaholism? Bring us from our need for more accumulation and accomplishment. The answer is yes, and it's Sabbath. And we're going to talk about that some more this morning. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy. Like I said earlier, for those that needed it, Deuteronomy 5 is where we are. And there's a reminder in Deuteronomy 5 of the covenant that took place on Sinai, this important kind of moment that happened in Israel's history. So what happened after the uh, Israelites were were set free from the Egyptians. They went through the Red Sea and they came out on the other side. And God laid out this covenant with these people, this unique covenant. And he provided these Ten Commandments that were significant, these values that were altogether th- different than the values of, of Pharaoh and Egypt. And so, like I said last week, those people who once first heard that now grew older And many of them died. And this new crop, this new generation now arose. And as they arose, God wanted to remind them as well of this critical, these values that he wanted to instill into them and and the Ten Commandments. And so we see that take place in what's called the second Torah, which is Deuteronomy. So the first point we have of the three this morning is this. God commands the next generation to never go back to the tyranny of Egypt. And we'll read this in Deuteronomy 5. Starting in verse 12, it says this Observe the Sabbath day. This is the fourth commandment to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were, one, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So unlike the, the text in Exodus, and we get this twice, in Exodus, it's to the people that just came out of Egypt. And the reminder to those people were, remember that God created six days for you to work and one day for you to rest. It was a rhythm, Sabbath as rhythm. And then this next generation, 40 years later, God does not point back to the rhythm of creation. He points back to the fact that their forefathers, their parents were enslaved in Egypt and Sabbath freezes, it resists it causes us to resist from going back to that place in Egypt. See, the emphasis in Deuteronomy is on resistance. Remember, you were once slaves in the land of Egypt. And the Lord, He rescued you. He brought salvation to you out from under the tyranny of Egypt. Therefore, He commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So, Deuteronomy is grounded in the, the story of the Exodus, but the plea is resistance. The call to these, this next generation is to resist a warning. Don't ever go back to Egypt. You might not feel how painful that time was, but never go back to the ways of Egypt. To the next generation, there's a warning to never go back to Egypt. Because what happened was months later, the, the Israelites are set free, and within months, they forget all the, the pain of being in Egypt. The Israelites began to to miss it like an abused person wanting to go back to the abuser. So Israel began to long for all the good things that were in Egypt and forgot all the bad things that were a part of Egypt. See, there was an allure of Egypt that that drew them in back to the chains that once existed in Egypt. So last week, we talked about the Sabbath as a a resistance to keep away from the temptation of the desire to not embrace our limits. And today, we're going to consider how practicing Sabbath allows us to resist the temptations of accumulation and accomplishment, the essence of Egypt. Let's look at this. Deuteronomy 5.15. We just read it. He says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. So it's like a journey down memory lane. Again, it's so important for us to understand the implications of of what this next generation is being called into. So in Exodus 1, I want to read a a chunk of of text. And I want you to kind of feel what's happening to the Israelites. And we're going to be able to sympathize and kind of see some similarities in our own life in a minute. But in Exodus 1, starting in verse 8, we read this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy... Did I skip a part? Join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Both the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with Hard service in the in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field, and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This was the context of life in Egypt. None of that was alluring, none of that would be a draw to go back and live under. It was a heavy burden. They were a cog in the machine. They were pawns of Pharaoh. Their own, their very identity, the very core of who Pharaoh saw them to be was a means to an end to accumulate more. They would build bigger buildings so he could build, have more stuff to, to store. And so he wanted them to build and build and build so that he could accumulate more and more and more. Their one purpose was to feed into the materialistic greed of pharaoh this word ruthlessly is a, is he, the hebrew word implies violence and so for 430 for over about 400 years we see that they were under the tyranny of this rulership so you fast forward to exodus chapter 2 and we read this Exodus 2, 23 through 25, it says, see if I can get to it first, good, great, 23, it says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac. And with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So again, this this tyranny that they were under. They began to groan. They began to cry out for God to rescue them from the slavery that they were under. And then we get to Exodus chapter 5. This will will be the last section I read to you related to this. But I think it's helpful to understand the weight that they were under. I'll pick up my verse. Seven, it says, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor. At it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, "Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least." So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble and for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, "Complete your work." your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task, of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The story continues. You can imagine how crushing that tyranny was. That was their life. Generation, generation, generation generation. All they knew was to make bricks and make bricks and make bricks. Under the weight of Pharaoh, production and consumption is the prize and the people are the fuel. Pharaoh endlessly demanded more production. It was a crushing pressure. See, there's no rest under the rulership of Pharaoh. In the economy of Egypt, under the rulership of Pharaoh, There is no rest. His way is the way of endless desire, endless productivity, and endless restlessness without any rest. So when Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon or wealth and capital, it could be considered that he would say you can't serve God and Pharaoh. It's impossible to serve the rule and system of Pharaoh and the rule and system of God. So the rescue happens, and and the the Israelites are finally freed from that tyranny. And they come out and they celebrate in Exodus 15, 18. They celebrate that the Lord shall reign forever and ever. There's a new king that is now over them. They were once under Egypt. That's the context. Once under Pharaoh. They've now been rescued from that. They've celebrated that they're under a new king. And finally, when this new God provided a new set of commands, a new set of guidelines, it was shocking. So in Deuteronomy... It, he gives those Ten Commandments. And he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the, out of the land of Egypt. And then he says, you have no other God before me. He, have, he says, don't, don't carve any other image. He goes on to say, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. All of those were shocking to these people who were for hundreds of years under Egypt. But I think that one of the ones, if I'm an Israelite, was maybe most shocking was this one we just read. Again, hundreds of years under Egypt and Pharaoh. You've now been set free. And the new guidelines of the new king is six days you work and one day you rest. I mean, try to get yourself into the story. Imagine how shocking that was if you're an Israelite. For hundreds of years, you felt that. And all of a sudden, overnight, you've now been given this new guideline. I mean, for me, I don't even know the names of my grandparents. Some of you guys are better than me. And I get it. I know you are. But I don't even know their names. But imagine for generation after generation after generation, that's all you've been taught. That's all you've been told all of your life. You're a brickmaker, man. You never rest. That's all you do. And then when you die, your kids are going to do it. And then when your kids get, die, their kids are going to do it. And for generation after generation after generation, that's all you're going to do. And then they're set free and given this new way. I mean, being a, being a means of production was in their bones. Accomplishment was was what defined them. And God comes in and he reorients them. He says there's another way to live than living under the, the weight and the tyranny of Pharaoh and his system. There is a new way. There's an alternative way. There's a way of resistance that's counter to once you wa- what you once were taught. He's providing a, a redefinition of identity. That you're not defined by what you do. You're defined by me and my love for you and my covenant. That's what defines you. What, what defines you is not what you produce, what you accumulate, what you accomplish. What defines you is me. And God's reorienting the Israelites in real time by the Sabbath. See, out of all the commands, God spent the most amount of time on the Sabbath command. At another time, read, read through all the Ten Commandments. Some of them are four words, you shall not murder. I mean, it's like simple. You shall not steal. And then this hefty paragraph, we get around the Sabbath because of how important it was for them to understand. He had to do that because it was shocking to them. Shocking to think that this was life under the new king. See, the Egyptian system was a frantic system. There was no Sabbath. There was no work stoppage. 24-7 machine. And now Yahweh brings them in and says, there is now a new system. You have limits. Limits to your abilities. Limits to your capacity. Limits to your weekly rhythms. See, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of who came in the person of Jesus, is not a workaholic. See, God is not Pharaoh. God does not keep jacking up production schedules. To the contrary, God works and creates, and then he rests. So Yahweh is a Sabbath-giving, Sabbath-keeping God. And his command is a gift to us. He says, child, get off the hamster wheel one day a week and redefine yourself and who you actually are. See, Sabbath becomes a decisive, concrete way of us opting into who God actually calls us to be. So wherever Yahweh governs, he governs with this place of work and rest, which leads us to our sec po- second point. So that's the context. They are called to be set free, and the second point for us today is that we live in a modern-day Egypt and with a modern-day pharaoh. We live in real time with the system of Egypt existing even now. Egypt and Pharaoh are an archetype to our own reality. 24/7 non-stop productivity the goal is to gain capital at all costs doesn't matter if you're a means to an end you will grind you into the ground to make sure that we can produce and make as much money as we can see in a- a- apocalyptic language we we hear about Babylon and Egypt a lot. We went through Revelation over the last couple of years and we did. We talked about this system of Babylon, this system of Egypt that's kind of ingrained itself into every country throughout human history. Every country, doesn't matter how good it starts, it always ends by looking a lot more like Babylon and a lot more like Egypt. Becoming a production mechanism to gain and to use people as a means to an end. See, we live in a culture of more. Americans choose more money over more time. All the time. I don't recall the source, but I heard it said that most people spend time to get money. Happy people spend money to get time. Right? We work more than ever. We have more than ever. This was interesting. So so we're, we're made up of about 4% of the world's population is in America. United States of America. About 4% of the world's population. But we accumulate and we need more than most countries Consider this about Americans. 2.04 billion square feet of total rentable storage space. That's us. In our country, we have 2.04 billion square feet just for rent, for space that we can rent to store our junk in. So play that out. That's 6.1 square feet per person to store our stuff. What's interesting is to compare that to one of the many city centers in India where people have 100 square feet just to live. And we have six square feet just for our junk that we don't use. Like that's our, our makeup. That's the, the reality of our need to accumulate and to, it's just kind of ingrained into who we are. It shows like hoarders for a reason because we just want to have more. We work more than ever. We have more than ever. See, our Pharaoh is different than their Pharaoh. Our Pharaoh was given the keys of our life. Because of our desire, because of uh, our desires, and, uh, we, we are worked to the bone, and we say, we want to have more, so we'll give you the keys for you to rule our life. See, Pharaoh and his system is alive and well today for us. Has side, sad side effects. Mental illness is Exploding. In our day, we know this. According to a pharmaceutical journal, the latest increase means that the number of antidepressant items prescribed over the past six years means that we've increased from 2015 to 2021, an increase of 34% in the need for antidepressants. There's many reasons for why that's the case. But this is one of the primary culprits. A a constant need for more, always being on, on call, Man, it is driving us into the ground. We work more than ever. We have more than ever. Yet we're restless. Like the frog and the kettle, we have unintentionally assimilated. It's what we do. It's what, if that's what you were taught from your parents and their their parents, if that's all you've been taught, then maybe we've just assimilated into work extra hours and always checking email and saying yes to every promotion th- without thinking of the cost feel the need to accumulate, having to give our teenager a phone as soon as they ask, having to miss church for months on end because our third grader might be somebody great on ESPN. It's easy to feel powerless. Truly, it's easy to feel powerless. It's easy to feel sucked in. And Sabbath is an act of resistance. It says, yeah, we'll, we'll do a lot of it. Six days we work, but But we're going to set aside a day to recalibrate and remember who we actually are. There's more to life than production. We are set free by a new king. We're no longer under Pharaoh. We're no longer under Egypt. And, man, we feel the draw to be under Pharaoh and under Egypt. And we want to give him the keys because at least he's going to scratch our desire short term. He's going to drive us into the ground. But short term, it's going to feel good. And we say, no, we're good. As a distinct people, we want to set aside some time. It might not be a day for you. You might not be able to do that. But some hours and to say, you know what? We're going to surrender. We're going to say, we're, we're going to get off the hamster wheel. And for a little bit of time, we're going to reset and remember who we actually are. See, we're set free by a new king and invited to break our addiction of accomplishment and career. It appears that we love to be enslaved to what will destroy us. And we hate to be enslaved to the things that give us life, which is true. We are no different than our first parents. We hear the words from our creator that you can have all of this, just don't have this. And then we can hear the chirpings of the serpent. Did God really say, is he really going to come through? Is he really enough? Is he really good? And it keeps us enslaved. So it was with Israelites, so it is with us. Matthew Sleeth, who was a doctor turned author, he wrote this about Sabbath. He said, subtracting a day of rest each week has had a profound effect on our lives. How could it not? One day a week adds up. 52 days a year times an average lifespan is equal to more than 11 years. Take away 11 years of anything in a lifetime and there will be a change. This is a law of the universe. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Subtract over a decade of sleep, work, or education, and the entire character of one's existence is altered. Multiply 11 years times a third of a billion Americans, and you're looking for a lost continent of time. Unfortunately, in our society, it's not Monday that got mislaid. It's our Sabbath, our day of rest. If there is to be any hope for recovering the Sabbath, we must first admit that something is missing. Despite reassurances of convenience, safety, and choice, America has been cons. See, Egypt is alive and well in 2023. Which leads to the third and final point, which is this Sabbath is a practice that invites us into a posture of resistance. See, we have assimilated. We have, I have assimilated. I've assimilated into the culture far more than I realize. And we're invited. Jesus, come out. We're invited by Jesus to be set apart. Holy ones, different from the way of this world, to resist and to embrace the new king and to accept his way. See, Egypt's appetite for more is insatiable. And its archetype is alive and well, and Sabbath invites us to observe a day when we are once enslaved to the ways of sin, to the ways of this world, to the ways of accomplishment and accumulation. But man, we've been set free from that. and We're under a new king and a new rulership that says you can rest and you are loved even in that place. Remember, you were slaves. Remember, you were Remember, you were slaves, but you're no longer slaves. And ground yourself into that. See, Sabbath invites us to resist. Resist the urge to accumulate and to accomplish. We have assimilated into this. And if we're honest, all we know is what we've been taught. So if you trace your drive, this is interesting. It's, it's, it's what's called a genogram. You can trace your, your drive and kind of your motivation for certain things by looking at your parents, your siblings, your grandparents, and you can consider themes that have been passed on to you. You're much more like your parents than you want to admit. In your 20s, you're like, nah, I'm going to be nothing like your parents. In your 40s, you're like the exact replica of your mom and dad. It's just weird how it works. And it is. It's how it works. Yeah, thanks. You know who that is. Thanks, Pop. So, trace your, so you can trace your, uh, your drive for accumulation and accomplishment. There's a few options. Maybe you grew up being told you were good and successful based off your production, based off your grades. You play that out, and that's all you were taught. You were never, you were, uh, you know, punished for anything you did wrong, and you were told that you were successful only by the things that you produced. What does that do to you? That makes you realize that you're only successful by how you produce. It gets into your bones. It becomes who you are. Or you grew up seeing the celebration of workaholism. Maybe that's all you are taught. And so it bakes into who you are. Or you grew up poor, and now you're carrying the pressure to be the opposite of what you once were. Trusting your own energy to avoid what you once saw. It's in your bones. And then Jesus says, I got another way for you. That's going to be a dead end. That's going to enslave you. And in his, in his kindness, he says, come to me. What, what is that doing for you? How is, that, how is that bringing life to you? How is that bringing joy to you? Maybe there's another way. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke. I'm going to take that yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And it's here when you remove that yoke of what you were once taught and you're given the yoke of Jesus. And that's discipleship. That's the hard work of going deep into your past, seeing the themes of your past. Some are how similar, that are similar to the ways of Jesus, and some that that are counter. And surrendering those ways, and taking on the yoke of Jesus, and it's in that place, and that posture, that we actually find life. See, as a redeemed people, Sabbath calls us into a new way. Yeah, six days you work, and you work your butt off, and you work hard, and you create. We're actually going to do a series on work coming up. It's interesting how we're doing Sabbath and then work, because we want to blend these two realities together more deeply. So we're called to create, we're called to cultivate, and then we're called to rest. Walter Brueggemann, in his book about resistance and Sabbath, he says, The Sabbath, along with other practices, concerns the maintenance of a distinct faith identity. In the midst of a culture that is And hospitable to all distinct identities and its impatient reduction of all human life to the requirements of the market. Meaning, Sabbath invites us to be a different people, separate than Egypt and Pharaoh that we see today. I don't know if we recognize that that everything, the flesh, the world, the devil, everything is against God's design for this. Everything is against God's design for this. So, this way of distinct identity is counter to Satan, the world, and our very flesh. Consider Satan. The devil would love to keep us under Pharaoh's rule. The devil would love to keep you under Pharaoh's rule. He doesn't care who rules you, he doesn't need to rule you. As long as God's not ruling you, he's winning. And so he's cool with all kinds of things ruling you that are separate than himself, as long as it's not God who's ruling you. See, as Lewis colors this in and the screw tape letters, the senior demon whose screw tape is trying to help his new tempting nephew, Wormwood, keep the new Christian sliding away from his faith. And he says this, As this condition becomes more fully established, you will be gradually freed from the tiresome busyness of providing pleasures as temptation. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and as habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego, for that is what habit fortunately does to a pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention." He goes on to say, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless, doubt, doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, which is God it, for this story. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than, than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, the devil would love to keep you on the hamster wheel. He would love it. Busy, hurried, restless. No rhythm of work and rest. Grinding your soul. Keeping you from the purpose of a higher vision of life and meaning. This is exactly what he would want from you. Corrie ten Boom prophetically said that She was a, a part of a, uh, the counter regime in the World War II to protect Jews. And so she housed Jews. She went through a concentration camp. She saw evil that we've never experienced. And she said this about the devil. If she could have said anything, she said this. If the devil cannot make us bad, he'll make us busy. She could have said anything. But she experienced that the busyness of our soul can grind us into the ground, and it's the very thing that the devil would love for us. So Sabbath is a way of resistance, resisting the drive for accumulation, resisting the drive for accomplishment. So friends, we're invited into an alternative way. I'll close with this story. About Eric Little, you guys know the story because you you know the the great uh, movie that was uh, the Oscar winning film, Chariots of Fire. But he was known as the Flying Scotsman and is most widely known for his refusal to run on a Sunday during his Olympic meet in 1924, the, the Olympic Games in Paris. He, he was a committed follower of Jesus and he withdrew from his v- event that he was the strongest at because he was committed. Six days I work, one day I rest. And we look at that and we're like, you for real? Like, just maybe one Sunday, you could have like, gotten a gold medal. And maybe you had had a speech and say, I first, like, to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Like, you could have done that, right? And he, and he didn't, but, but he had a value baked into who he was. Six days I work, one day I rest. It's a beautiful picture to us, for someone who could have had gold. Beautiful for us to see. He wasn't under Pharaoh. He wasn't under Egypt. And again, like if you chose, maybe you guys are some runners. I don't know. Probably not, but maybe. Uh, And maybe one of you guys I don't know about that is going to be an Olympic medalist. And and if you run, great. Like, bless your heart. Give me a ticket. I'll join you, and I'll cheer you on so loud. But, man, the, the point isn't legalism. The point is this vision. I'm not going to be under Pharaoh in Egypt. I'm set free, man. I have a new king. I've been set free, and my identity is not on what I do. It's not on what I produce. Six days I work, and one day I rest. I stop. I rest. I delight. I worship. It's the vision that Jesus, he provides for us. What a beautiful invitation of resistance. We're invited to take on the yoke of Jesus, find rest for our souls. Friends, you've been set free. You have been set free. I have been set free. And sometimes when we are set free and we enter into that place of Sabbath, it feels like you're an addict wanting to go back to production. And it takes time to truly rest. But, man, it is good for our souls. What a beautiful invitation Jesus gives us. Resistance and rest he offers to us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for some of us just to have courage to believe that we've been set free. It can be a vulnerable place to not be what we've always been taught, to accumulate, to accomplish. That's who we are. That's what defines us. And then we get set free, and we have this new rhythm. And I pray that you'd help us. I pray you'd build this into the framework of who we are. For some of us, you know, just an afternoon or a morning or an evening or a day, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'd invite us to take a step of courage to trust you with our lives, God. We give you thanks. You don't leave us restless. You invite us into a new way. Help us to embrace it, God, in Jesus' name.